Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. This morning we return to our series in the book of Isaiah, so if you'll be finding the 64th chapter of Isaiah, that is where we will be today. Last Sunday, of course, was Easter, the high point on the Christian calendar. The most exciting Sunday of the year when we celebrate the greatest event in history. The miracle or the sign above all others that Jesus was and is, in fact, the Messiah who came to take away our sins. A time when God spoke loudly and powerfully. And as a result, most every church has its highest attendance of the year, usually significantly so. I've not done a study, but I would be willing to guess that the day also sees the highest amount of social media posts by Christians as well. I mean, it is obligatory to post a photo of some empty tomb or a family picture or both and to say something in the caption like, he is risen or the tomb is empty. I love Easter. I've told you this in the past. It is the one Sunday of all of the year where church attendance takes priority and precedence over other things. And so it is a mountaintop experience of faith and religion. But you also know what happens after mountaintop experiences. You have to come down from the mountain. We would love to stay there as the three disciples of Jesus wanted to on the Mount of Transfiguration where they said to him, should should we just put some tents up so that we could remain here? And so we have that desire to remain on the mountain, but we know that we cannot. Around Easter, we have a saying, it's Friday, but Sunday is coming. Perhaps we need to add another saying to that. It's Sunday, but Monday is coming. Now, I'm not trying to be pessimistic this morning. I'm just trying to be realistic. And realistically, we have to acknowledge that God is often silent. And that frustrates us. By silent, I do not mean not speaking because we believe that God has spoken and continues to speak through his word. And so I'm not talking about audible voices or inner promptings or mystical guidance. I'm talking about the fact that sometimes we want God to act in our lives and he is not acting. We want him to do something on our behalf and yet there is silence Perhaps it is after another mass shooting, more and more violence in our country, and we wonder why God doesn't do something about it, something to stop it or something to prevent it. Or maybe it is a crumbling marriage and God has not changed hearts. Maybe it's a physical illness that you or a loved one have been struggling with and you see the healings in the New Testament, so why doesn't God heal you? 
It might have to do with your finances or your career or any number of situations or circumstances where you've asked God to work, oftentimes repeatedly, and you know he has the power to do it, and yet there is nothing. Again, we are returning to our series in the book of Isaiah, nearing the end of it. We will actually complete it next Sunday. And we've talked several times about how Isaiah is addressing decades in the future when the people will have been deported, their cities will have been destroyed, even as we'll see in this particular text, and they will be in Babylon. And they are wanting to go home. They are desperate to return to the promised land to rebuild their cities and the temple and even their lives, but God is silent leaving them frustrated and discouraged. So while our circumstances are different, we often share the same feelings when God is not answering us. And so we want to talk today about our own lives. After the high of Easter Sunday morning, we want to focus today on the silence of Saturday. How do we live our lives when God is silent. Look at Isaiah chapter 64, and before I read it, look at the very last verse where they plead, will you keep silent? That's the theme here. Verse 1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? We want to learn how to live 
in those times when God is silent. And that begins, and all of these will be continual this morning. These are not one-time activities where we can do them today and then God is going to speak. This is, a, this is all going to be a, a focus of our lives moving forward. That is, continually we need to practice these things. And the first is that we need to pray with passion. The chapter divisions are a bit unfortunate here because the prayer actually begins in chapter 63. Both verses 15 and 17 of this previous chapter, we see the people imploring God to see what they are going through and to act. And then our chapter opens with this imploring of God, would you rend the heavens and come down? God, would you see how your people are being treated and act? We can hear the passion and pain flowing from their lips. God, we need you. God, we desperately need you to act. And although it is in the present tense in our chapter, in actuality in the Hebrew, it is in past tense. That is, oh God, had you acted in the past, we would not be in the situation that we are in today. Our circumstances would have changed. Our hearts would have changed. But, but you haven't acted, at least not as yet. But we believe that you still can, and therefore we are pleading for the powerful intervention of God. Now, I want you to notice their reasoning. Because while I began by citing some things that might be going on in our lives, some circumstances that we are going through whereby we might be pleading with God to act, I want you to notice that none of those circumstances that I mention are the reason why they are praying. Look at verse 2. To make your name known to your adversaries. This is a kingdom-minded prayer. Yes, they do want out of their circumstances. Yes, they do want to go back home. And yes, they do want to rebuild their cities and their lives. But ultimately and primarily, this is a prayer about the power and the name of God. They want the name of God to be known to the other nations. That those other nations might fear God and either repent of their own sins or face judgment. You might remember that sometime back I said that in this culture, war and religion went together. Now what I mean by that is that the, the nation that won the battle was perceived to be the nation that had the stronger God. And therefore it looks like, we know it's not true, but it looks like Israel's God has been defeated. And so in this culture, they want God to act so that the other nations can see that he has not been, in fact, defeated, but he is the God above all gods, verse 4, that no God could compare to him. So maybe this is part of our problem. Perhaps this is at least one of the reasons why God is silent. We might pray, and we might even pray with passion during a crisis, but it would be safe to say that most of our prayers are personal in nature. Now, hear me correctly. There is nothing wrong with praying for your personal issues. There is nothing wrong with wanting and asking, even urgently and passionately, for God to work in your personal life. But my question is simply, where is the passion for the kingdom of God? Where on our prayer list is a desire for the name of God to be known? 
Are we concerned about the spiritual condition of the people we know, the spiritual condition of our church, the spiritual condition of our nation? Are we concerned about these things enough that we are crying out to God for him to act for his glory and for his name? Frankly, I'm not sure many of us see the desperateness of the hour. I realize that we complain about the other political party. I realize that we complain when there's another example of cancel culture. But do we see under all of this the spiritual apathy and indifference that is rapidly taking a hold of our lives and of our nation? Gallup polls released this week a study, a study they've been doing for eight decades. And that study was on church membership in our nation. And for the first time that they've been doing this study over eight decades, for the first time, church membership in the United States of America fell below 50%. Only 47% of people who were asked claim to be a member of a church. And I'm talking about any church. I'm not talking about evangelical churches or even Christian churches. I'm talking about churches of any stripe, of any kind, less than 50% now say in America that they are members of a church. And remember, we're only talking about membership. We're not talking about attendance because we know all too well that there are plenty of people who are members of a church but who never come. Frankly, what is on our prayer list tells a lot about what is important in our lives. And if we look at our prayer lists, then the most important thing is health and happiness. These things take a greater uh, priority than even the advancement of God's kingdom. In what is known as the model prayer or what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer, what is it that comes first? What comes first in that prayer that Jesus gave us? It says there, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Now after that, it deals with human issues. That is, issues like daily provisions and the forgiveness of sins and freedom and deliverance from temptation and evil. So there's nothing wrong with praying for those things, but I'm simply drawing your attention to the fact that prior to that, there is the name and the kingdom of God that takes precedence. One of the very first things that often goes in our lives when we are frustrated with God is our prayer lives. When God is silent, we move away from prayer. We begin to wonder if it's even worth it. I mean, if God's not answering what we're asking him to do, why do we keep praying at all? But the fact is, it is in the midst of the silence of God when we don't need to stop praying, we need to redouble our efforts at prayer and to do so passionately, not only for ourselves, but primarily for the advancement of God's kingdom. We need to be refreshed we need to be revived. We need God to come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. When God is silent, we need prayer that is passionate. Secondly, when God is silent, we need to wait with patience. We've talked about this briefly before from that more famous verse that talks about those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength and mount up with wings and soar like eagles. And I've said just a moment ago that we need renewal and we need refreshing and therefore we must wait with patience. 
I realize we don't like to wait. In fact, for most of us, including me, I could say that much stronger. We hate to wait. We view it as a waste of time, a time when we are not getting anything done, but only getting further behind in that which we need to accomplish. Now, we've gotten better at it, not because we've grown in patience, but because we now have phones that we can scroll through, social media that we can look at, information that we can look up while we are waiting, games that we can play, but it is still not ideal. But the waiting we see here in verse 4 is not passively or even angrily killing time until God chooses to act. It is an active trust in God that is willing to commit to his plan and his time over the long haul. When I say wait, I mean to continue to believe and have faith even when others have given up. It is a patient confidence and expecting faith, believing that God, while he might be silent in the present, will act on our behalf in the future. And that is why this aspect is so difficult, because it is so much easier to grumble and complain than it is to patiently trust. And I acknowledge that it's a whole lot easier to say this in a sermon. It is very easy for me to say, you need to wait patiently for God to act than it is for me to actually practice it in my own life. But notice, it specifically says that God is a God who acts for those who wait for him. It is God's action that we long for in the midst of his silence, and it is God who says, I will act for those who wait. And so wait, we must regardless of how hard it is or how long it might be. You remember that series we did on the major crises of the Bible? And I made sure to emphasize in that series how long those crises went on. Even the crisis that Isaiah is dealing with in this passage and the entirety of his book, that is the Babylonian captivity, it was going to last 70 years. And I dare say that most of the crises in our life are not going to last that long and not going to be that difficult. But the fact of the matter is we still struggle with it. Now, I hope you can see how these two things work in harmony. All of the five points we're dealing with this morning work together, but specifically these two. How we are to pray with passion and how we are to wait in patience. So that as we wait for God to act, we don't stop praying. We pray fervently and with passion. Then there is a third thing I notice in verse 5. That when God is silent, we need to continue to live with purpose. Verse 5 says there that those who joyfully walk in righteousness or jo joyfully work righteousness. Here again, our tendency in difficult times is often the opposite. I mean, if God is not going to answer, not only will I cease praying, but I'll certainly stop following. Why should I faithfully follow God? Why should I live a life of righteousness when he is not going to do what I ask him to do? I wonder how many of those that I mentioned earlier, those who are on church rolls but who never come anymore. I wonder how many of those are at home this morning because of this very idea. Because they were faithfully following God and God did not do what they wanted him to do, at least not in their time, and so they just quit. 
They took their ball and went home and said, why should I follow God? It doesn't pay to do so. We see this in Jesus' parable of the soils where he says that there are some of the seed that are going to fall on rocky ground and they're going to immediately spring up. But then they are going to be choked out. They don't have the root. And so when the sun rises, they are going to fade away. They're not going to faithfully follow when the times get tough. I saw a quote this week on social media that I thought was good. Now, most Christian quotes that I see on social media, I find to be trite and unimportant. But this one I liked. It said, we expect church to be convenient, but sports to require sacrifice. We want church to fit into our schedule and be convenient, but sports... I mean, we know that requires sacrifice, and therefore we teach our kids that sports require practice, hard work, dedication, struggle, and hardships. We implore them that they must stick with it. Don't give up. We are not a family of quitters. But we don't teach those same things as it applies to our spiritual lives. And there is something drastically upside down when we are teaching this about sports and not about our spiritual lives. Another reason why we need God to come down and rend the heavens. Here again, the promise is very clear. God, he says here, will meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Now, I'm not trying to imply that this is a quid pro quo agreement. That's a Latin phrase you've heard before. We hear it in government or in business. It literally means something for something. Now, we might be more familiar with the southern version. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It means that I'll do something for you if you do something for me. But the idea here is not that we are to live a righteous life and therefore this obligates God to do something on our behalf. And again, there are plenty of people who have thought this and been disillusioned as a result. You do understand that God owes you nothing. No matter what you and I could ever do, God owes us nothing. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, even the righteous things we do are tainted through by, through by, and through by sin. We are to live righteous lives because if we belong to God, we have been declared righteous through the righteousness of Christ, and then we've been commanded by God through the Scriptures to live out this new status, that is to take our positional righteousness and make it practical by the way we live. And we've been equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the strength to do that which we've been commanded to do. Something we cannot do on our own, but we can do through His strength. And this is all to be done joyfully because God has changed us. That is because we know who he is, we've been saved by him, we belong to him, therefore we are to walk in righteousness. We are to walk or live our lives in God's way. That is a life of purpose. There was another, another study put out this week, this time by Lifeway. Lifeway asked people how often they thought about their lives needing to have more meaning or purpose. The majority of people, 42% said, I know that's not a majority, but hang on. 42% said they think about needing greater meaning or purpose in their life, either daily or weekly. 
But when you add those who said monthly, the percentage goes to 57%. That's the majority. So 57% of people who were asked said at least monthly, if not more, but at least monthly, I think about the need for me to have more meaning and purpose in life. And yet we don't really need to think about that. Because the Bible already gives us the answer to that and the how-to to have more meaning and purpose. Living with greater purpose or meaning involves living according to God's way. Not only will this bring joy, something else so many people are missing, but it will also involve the presence of God, something we're going to talk about in just a few moments in greater detail. And one of the reasons we often perceive that God is silent is simply because we're not actively and faithfully walking with God. But the more we live with purpose, that is, live in righteous living, the more we are aware of God's presence in and among us. Again, I don't mean in some mystical way. I mean in a practical sense in which God is at work around us, and we recognize this because we are walking with him. So it is possible for the silence of God to be a fact in our lives because we're not walking with him. And thus we are unable to recognize his presence. James, who in his epistle is always good about saying things very clearly, James said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So if you're wondering where God is, the question might be, Are you walking with him? The next thing I notice in this text that talks about how we are to live our lives when God is silent comes in verse 5. And there we see that we are to confess with priority. In the second half of verse 5, they acknowledge their sin and the fact that this sin had been going on for a very long time. And they acknowledge that God is angry and that God has a right to be angry as is evidenced by all that God has brought against them. And then we find language that makes it abundantly clear that this is a sweeping indictment. All are guilty. Paul uses very similar language in Romans chapter 3 to come to the same conclusion. As does Isaiah chapter 6, that great call chapter of Isaiah, when Isaiah says, Behold, I'm unclean, and not only am I unclean, but I live among a people who are also unclean. In fact, the situation is so desperate that even the righteous acts that we do, those very best things that we perform, are the equivalent, he says, of polluted garments. Now, I hesitated to as to how specific I should get in telling you what that term means. But that term does not refer to dirty clothes in your laundry basket. It does not refer to the grass stains on your children's clothing because they've been playing outside. It refers to the monthly garments of a woman, a time when she would be ceremonially unclean. And this, Isaiah says, is how our righteous acts, our very best deeds are viewed apart from the righteousness imputed to us by Christ. And what this tells us is two things. One, all are sinners in need of salvation. 
The universal nature of sin is a clear biblical teaching in both testaments. None are exempt because all have sin, and all have sin because we are descendants of Adam by nature, and then we have practiced sin by our own nature, and thus we are all separated from God. And as a result, the second thing is equally true. None of us can save ourselves. We are all sinners separated from God, and yet none of us can save ourselves. It is only God who saves, and thus it is to God we must confess our sins rather than merely trying to correct them on our own. If it is against God that we have sinned, it is only he who can pardon. And yet so many people continue to believe and teach that all you really need to do is clean up your act or try harder. As long as you do your best, God will be satisfied. And yet this text is abundantly clear that our best efforts, even though we can never even do this consistently, we never try our best all the time, but even if we did, it would be like a polluted garment in God's eyes. This past Sunday, Easter Sunday, in the greatest state of these United States, That's Georgia, for those of you who do not know. But this past Sunday, in the state of Georgia, a southern state, in the Bible Belt, in a prominent Baptist church, not Southern Baptist, but Baptist nevertheless, this statement was made by the pastor of that church in his Easter sermon, a pastor who is not only a pastor, but he is also a United States senator. He said this, the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Whether you are a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Whether you're a Christian or not, it doesn't really matter. As long as you try to help other people, you can save yourself. So not only is this guy teaching that you can save yourself by helping others, which seriously undercuts the whole purpose of the crucifixion and the resurrection, but he's also saying it's not even essential that you be a Christian. So the resurrection no longer matters. As long as you're good and you're trying to help other people, who needs Jesus? It's mind-boggling to think how far that strays from historic Christianity. And equally mind-boggling how many people believe these kinds of things. Many who wouldn't or even couldn't express it in these clear terms still live their lives on the basis of this kind of belief. And yet it is not biblical, it is not Christian, and it certainly will not save. Only a confession of sin and trust in Jesus Christ and his work will save us. But all who do that, all who put their faith in the finished work of Christ will be saved. In verse 5, the people seem to be questioning whether or not they can even be saved. Because they've sinned so long and so abundantly, they wonder if God can save them at all. And yet I'm here to tell you it is always possible, no matter what sins you've committed, for Jesus to save you. Because he says... All those who come to me, I will cast none of them out. The last thing I want you to see 
about how to live our lives when God is silent is we need to trust in his presence. By that I mean if you are indeed a believer and follower of Christ, there will be times when you don't feel nor do you sense his presence but, presence, but there will never be a time when he is not with you. After all, the promise is given repeatedly. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In verses 8 and 9, they are falling back on their relationship with God. We are your people. And for at least the third time, we see the potter and clay illustration. Though again, this time, it is different. The other two occasions when we've seen this illustration, it is about the fact that God is the creator. He is the sovereign creator. And because he is the sovereign creator, who are we to tell him what to do with our lives? But here the illustration is used differently. Yes, it is foolish for the creature to criticize the creator. But in this chapter, it's still God as potter and we are the clay. But here the idea is that God as the potter has lavished great care upon his clay, his people, and therefore he is not going to toss them aside. The artist values that which he creates. God values his people whom he has created and redeemed. So this is another of many assurances in God's word that we are secure in our relationship with God. There is no one, there is nothing that can take us away. And therefore, God himself is certainly not going to cast us aside because he's the one that created and redeemed us. So even when God is silent, we must rest and trust in our relationship with him, knowing that he is with us and he is working in and among us, even when it is difficult for us to perceive that. Yes, he may be silent in the sense that he's not changing your circumstances or answering a specific prayer, but he has not gone anywhere. And you still do belong to him. So trust in his presence even when you have trouble seeing his hand. Oh, that you would come down, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That really is our desire, or at least it ought to be. Not necessarily that God would come down and judge those who are enemies, but perhaps. But that God would work in a dramatic way, an undeniable way, that frees us from our circumstances and turns our suffering into blessing. Often our desires for God to act, quite frankly, are selfish. We want what we want, and that's the most important thing in our lives. But our desires ought to be kingdom-minded. This is another way of praying for revival and for refreshing. For us individually, for us as a church, and for us as a nation. And I am confident we need all of that, and we need it urgently. But there is another aspect to this as well. The fact that God has indeed rent the heavens and come down in the past. And he promises to do it in the future. On what we celebrate as Christmas, God rent the heavens and came down in the incarnation. And in that moment, he specifically said he did it that he might bring us salvation. At the baptism of Jesus, once again, the heavens were rent and God came down, this time in the form of a dove, to deliver the Spirit of God upon Jesus.
And once again, the people that were there and we who deserved judgment might have expected the judgment was coming when the heavens were opened at his baptism. Instead, we find the spirit like a dove. And then at the crucifixion, the earth quaked and darkness descended. Was God finally going to be, bring judgment upon sinful people? Hardly. Instead, in the quaking in the darkness, we find not the judgment of God, but we find the Lamb of God, slain for our sins. We might have expected in that moment for God to come as a conquering warrior, but instead what we find is a humble Savior. But make no mistake about it, this same Jesus who ascended into heaven a few weeks after Easter has promised to come again. And when the heavens are rent and opened again, he will return as the conquering Messiah to take his children to dwell with him forever as he has promised and at the same time to judge those who have rejected him. And so when the heavens are rented again and God comes down, which side of history will you be on? Will you belong to him? And dwell with him? Or will he say of you, depart from me? I never knew you. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the way you've acted on our behalf in times past. Coming down in the incarnation. Coming down in the crucifixion. And the promise of coming down again one day to take us to be with you. In the meantime, Lord, there are often days, perhaps even long periods of time, when we sense that you are silent. I pray that we would not grow weary of praying and living righteously during these times, but we would trust in your presence, knowing that you have not left us nor forsaken us, that you are still acting even when we cannot see it. So I pray that in those times of what we perceive to be silence, we would trust in you. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.